Let's pray together. Father, we confess that there is one foundation, the Lord Jesus himself. And this gospel that we believe, preached by the apostles, this is what we're building on. And Father, we're plugging away at our little plot of land that you've given us. And Father, we are praying that you would help us to build with gold and silver and with precious stones and not with the wood, hay, and the stubble. But Father, that our work would withstand the fire that is to come and that there would be fruit that will last. So Father, open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. We ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a story this last week in the New Yorker titled this. Maybe you saw it. How the elderly lose their rights. Guardians can sell the assets and control the lives of senior citizens without their consent and reap a profit from it. I don't know how many of you saw this, but this particular article focuses on an elderly couple living in Nevada, and their names are Rudy and Rennie North, and they had been married for about 57 years when their story starts in this article. And even though Rennie was, the the wife was recovering from lymphoma, uh, they were managing quite well together alone in their home. They had plenty of resources in their retirement to live off of. And then this happened, and I'm going to read to you just a little excerpt from the beginning of the story. On Friday before Labor Day 2013, the Norths had just finished their toast at breakfast when a nurse who visited five times a week to help Rennie bathe and dress came to their house. Rudy chatted with the nurse in the kitchen for 20 minutes, joking about marriage and laundry, until there was a knock at the door. A stocky woman with shiny black hair introduced herself as April Parks the owner of the company, a private professional guardian. She was accompanied by three colleagues who didn't give their names. Parks told the Norths that she had an order from the Clark County Family Court to remove them from their home. She would be taking them to an assisted living facility. Go and gather your things, she said. Rennie began crying. This is my home, she said. One of Parks' colleagues said that if the Norths didn't comply, he would call the police. Rudy remembers thinking, you're going to put my wife and me in jail for this? But he felt too confused to argue. And so the story goes on. They end up going along with this, being removed from their home, essentially. It's a long story, but they're taken away to this retirement facility. And the woman who showed up at the door had convinced a judge to make her their guardian which put all of their worldly possessions in her power. This woman did all of this without the knowledge of the North's daughter, their their adult daughter, who when a couple days she came uh, after they were taken out of their home, she came to visit them and they were gone. She didn't know where they were. She had to go searching for them just to find them. And over the next several years, the the North's were shuffled from facility to facility as this court-appointed guardian sold their house and all their possessions and squandered all their retirement assets. 
After many years of struggle, they were finally able to get free from her guardianship, but not before. They had lost everything. And now they live in a single bedroom with their daughter, finally, and they have nothing, but they do have their, their freedom back. So as I read their story, I was astonished that someone could come in and take away somebody's rights and property with a court-ordered permission. It's scandalous at so many levels that that kind of injustice could happen. But the injustice at the heart of it was that this woman claiming as her own, she was claiming as her own that which did not belong to her. She took their freedom away. She took their possessions away. She took their dignity away. She had no right to any of those things, and yet she, she took them as her own. And I saw a parallel in this between the way that this woman who showed up at their door, the way that she treated the North's belongings, and the way that some people treat God's belongings. And in this case, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the church. What happens when people ignore the fact that the church doesn't belong to us, but to God? What happens when a pastor forgets that the church isn't his, but God's? What happens when a congregation forgets that they aren't a pure democracy, just doing whatever they want to do, but that they are under the rule of a king? What happens is that church leaders will start treating the church as their own little playground for wealth acquisition or as a platform to gain influence and recognition. And what happens is that a congregation will begin to stray into division and strife over assets, turf battles, power struggles. That's the kind of thing that happens when people begin to believe that the church belongs to them. They will assume to themselves that possession as their own. And when we forget that the church is God's household, that it belongs to him, then we stand to lose our unity and our witness. And really, if you've lost those things, you've lost just about everything. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. As you know, we've been looking at this first section in 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul has been trying to face down division in the Corinthian church. Division that has resulted as, a, as people have been dividing themselves based on their love for worldly wisdom and for their devotion to different teachers who were there at the church in Corinth. And Paul was trying to show them that their divisions and their love of worldly wisdom is foolish and totally irreconcilable with the gospel. And in chapter 3, he's going to bring this home in spades by reminding the Corinthians who the church belongs to. Ultimately, it belongs to God, right? So we could divide this chapter into five parts which, in which Paul explains how their behavior is incompatible with who they are as God's people. So we got, we got five parts here, okay? And they go like this, and it's printed in your bulletin. But he's going to talk about God's people as fleshly, God's people as a field, God's people as a building, God's people as a temple, and God's people as wise. And I'll give you the verse divisions as we move through. But the first one here is God's people as fleshly in verses 1 through 4. 
So everybody look at verse 1. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of flesh, as infants in Christ. Now, when Paul says, I could not address you as spiritual people, he does not mean to take back everything that he said in the previous verses about their having the Holy Spirit dwelling within them, that they're a spiritual people. He's trying to communicate to them that their behavior and their attitudes are absolutely out of step with that spirit. Now, they may think that they are super spiritual. They may think that they are wise, but Paul's trying to disabuse them of that self-delusion. In fact, he says that they are like, quote, people of the flesh as infants in Christ. It's not that they are in the flesh, that they are dominated by the sinful nature, but they're acting like it. So he can't treat them like spiritual grown-ups. He has to treat them like children. So verse 2, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready. The Corinthians believed that they were mature in their understanding of wisdom. They thought that they were spiritual superstars. They, they thought that they knew how things ought to be run in the church. But Paul says, I couldn't even treat you as grown-ups, and I still can't. Why? Verse 3, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? And again here, he uses that term flesh. What does he mean by that? that the, the word flesh is a reference to the sinful nature. <clears throat> He's not saying that they're still slaves to their sin, I don't believe here. But in this instance, they are acting like they are. And the evidence of that is the jealousy and the strife that has divided the congregation. And so Paul says in verse 4, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So now he circled all the way back around to what he began with in chapter 1. Remember where he rebuked their divisions and he quoted them in their slogans. I follow Paul. I follow Cephas. I follow Christ. I follow Apollos. Now he's narrowed it down probably to where the division really lies. Some people are following Paul. Some people are saying that they want to follow Apollos. Some of the folks in Corinth really like Paul, but others have been carried away, maybe perhaps by the eloquence of Apollos. And so the congregation is divided, not for a good reason, but for a bad reason. They loved worldly wisdom, and they were disputing about which teacher exhibited the lion's share of worldly wisdom. Some people thought Paul, some people thought Apollos, but all of them apparently are dishonoring Christ in these divisions. Now, here's the point that I want you to notice about this. When there is division in the body, someone is sinning. When it comes to the faith, we're all supposed to be of the same mind, which means no division among us, according to chapter 1 and verse 10. When it comes to our care for one another, we're all supposed to have the same love for one another. So same mind, same faith, same love for one another. When there is division... Someone, somewhere, has departed from either truth or from love that's supposed to characterize us. And that departure is always sinful. 
Paul's telling us that when this happens, someone is being fleshly. It might be that one side of the dispute is sinning and the other isn't. Or it might be that both sides are sinning, as it seems to be the case here in Corinth. In either case, if there's division, there is sin. Now, where does this come from? James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say this. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. Whenever there is division among us, there, somebody on some side, if that thing persists, somebody is sinning. There is a failure of love or a failure of truth going on somewhere when we become irreconcilable with one another. And so when there's a division among us and you perceive yourself to be a party to that dispute, whatever it is, the immediate question that you have to ask yourself is this. Am I a part of the problem here or am I a part of the solution? Is the divide that is going on in any way due to a departure from truth or love on my part? That's the first question you got to ask yourself when there's a division fomenting. And if the answer to that question is yes, then the path to reconciliation and to a restoration of truth and of love, that path is repentance. And so there, there are going to be difficult situations that any church is going to go through. We're going to face difficult situations in this church. But your number one responsibility is to make sure that you are not a part of the problem, but a part of the solution. And that and no matter what side of a, a, div, a division you're on, that you don't become recalcitrant to reconciliation. That you're humble enough to enter into a reconciliation. When we refuse to work through our divisions and to reconcile, we prove that we are being fleshly and behaving like mere men. Do you see that that's what Paul is saying here? He's saying the, the divisions are evidence of your fleshliness. That's what they mean. And they're giving the wrong impression to people. So some people will say, well, you, you, just, you people are a bunch of you know, cookie-cutter people. You just sort of force conformity and all this. Stuff. That's not what we're really about here. Okay, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. When that stops happening because of division, something really wrong is going on in a church. It has to be fixed. And every single one of us as brothers and sisters in Christ has a responsibility to have our, our hearts open to one another to reconcile through division and not to let them just foment indefinitely. So Paul addresses these people as fleshly in verses one through four because of their divisions. But look what he says in verses five through nine. He addresses them, he addresses God's people as a field. Look at verse five. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Now, these are rhetorical questions, obviously, from Paul, designed to make the Corinthians realize how foolish it is to put all of their chips on one particular teacher who's faithfully preaching the gospel. Those teachers, after all, are nothing by themselves. 
They are mere servants of the Lord. They're messengers of a greater and a higher king, Jesus. They are servants that God used to bring the Corinthians to faith and to grow them in the faith. That's who Paul and Apollos were. But no fruit came to them because of their own eloquence and wisdom. People came to faith, Paul says, as the Lord gave to each. Did you notice that little phrase at the end? Yes, Paul and Apollos are teaching and preaching. They've done that in Corinth. But who believed? Who grew? Only the ones that the Lord gave. Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. What are Paul and Apollos in this scheme? Well, nothing. They are fools for Christ's sake. But who is the one causing the growth? God, and God is everything. Because he's ultimate. Verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Do you see, Paul, how he's, he's, he's building this metaphor of a field? Paul does not believe Apollos to be his rival in the field. They're both working in the field. Paul believes Apollos to be a faithful fellow worker for the gospel. They're like two day workers working out in this field. They're faithfully planting and watering. And each one of them is going to get a wage due to them at the judgment for their faithful work. Paul is not calling into question Apollos' integrity. He's calling into question the Corinthians' divisiveness. Problem's not Apollos. Problem's the Corinthians. They're being fleshly. Verse 9. How do you know the problem's not Apollos? Verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. So Paul says that he and Apollos are together doing the Lord's work. And their work is to do what God told them to do in God's field. God's people are the field. It's God's field, God's rules, God's work, and all the credit for fruitfulness goes to God, to God alone, and not to the workers. If that's the case, then how can God's people be exalting their favorite teachers as if they amount to anything in this calculus? Much less dividing themselves into factions based on an ungodly preference for a certain teacher. How many, uh, I'm going to do a quick survey here. How many current and former pastoral interns do we have in here? Do we have any? Oh, look at all these guys. Look at, on the front. Look at that. That's great. Um, so I, I do the pastoral internship in this church. And uh, many of you already know this, but for those of you who don't, we spend a whole lot of time together uh, trying to work on preaching. I'm trying to help them improve as preachers of the word. And in, in the internship, I don't teach them a lot about how to do exegesis and interpreting the Bible. It's mainly focused on sermon delivery, which means we focus on how to structure a sermon, how to write an introduction, how to craft illustrations. We spend time on improving nonverbal communi communication. We even talk about how to stand right. I'm not standing right right now. Okay, now I am doing it. Um, how to do hand gestures right, right? Um, how to vary the pitch and the volume and the speed of our voices. 
We preach to each other and critique each other and call each other out when we mess up. They'll get a chance to critique this sermon on Friday when we meet together. And it's great because we all love each other and, and we are, it's a great context to get that kind of feedback. But one of, we, we do all this for a reason. Because we want to be better communicators. You know, one of my seminary professors, a guy named Howard Hendricks, he used to tell us that one of the worst things that a person can do with the Bible is to bore people with the Bible. The Bible is not boring. And so if the preacher is boring and the Bible is not boring, then the preacher is doing something that's not communicating accurately about what the Bible is. So I believe that. So I want to be a better communicator. I want to work on it. The elders, we sometimes give each other feedback about this because we want to get better at this. But here's the thing. In trying to be better communicators, what are we doing? We are not under the illusion that slick communication skills are going to save anybody. We work on this because maybe we want to remove stumbling blocks from the message, but we are under no illusions that eloquence has ever saved anyone. We are servants, which means that we are nothing and God is everything. We want to get better. We want to try to help each other to do that. But we know that fruitfulness in ministry comes from God. If anything good happens in this room Sunday after Sunday, it will be because of the power of God, not because of us, not because of the eloquence or gifting of any preacher. God can use that. He does not depend on that. No church members, no preacher has any ground to make make much of himself in his preaching ministry. It just makes no sense if you understand what's going on here. No church member has any grounds to idolize any preacher in this church or elsewhere. If God is blessing the ministry of the word, then we say hallelujah with an emphasis on the Yah, which means God, right, in Hebrew. God did it, and we say it. Thank you, Lord, for using us. All glory to you. We are God's field, so it's God's glory alone. And we understand who is causing the growth. Do you see how division, based on your devotion to different teachers, doesn't make any sense at all? It also means that when you have faithful teachers, you need to love the truth wherever you can find it. And you got to learn how to love that. So he talks about God's people as fleshly, God's people as a field, God's people, third, as a building. Look at verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. Now, at the end of verse 9, Paul switches metaphors from a field to a building. And he's saying now in verse 10 that God's people are like that kind of a structure. And so Paul adds in verse 10 that he's a skilled master builder. Literally, I wish you could see this in English better, but he says, I'm a wise master builder. Remember, they love wisdom. He uses this word that can mean wise or skilled here, but he says, I'm a, I'm a sophos. I'm a wise master builder. The word is architecton, where we get our word architect from. I'm a wise master builder. And so Paul is using this metaphor of a building to explain really the history of the church at Corinth. 
As a master architect, Paul laid the foundation for the building himself. How did he do that? Well, go back and read Acts chapter 18. What did Paul do? He came to Corinth and he preached the gospel in the synagogue until they kicked him out. Then he preached it next door. And then God started saving people. Saved the leader of the synagogue. Saved all these Gentiles, right? Paul went and was the wise master builder. He preached to them. And people came to the faith. He preached in the face of opposition. The Lord Jesus comes to him and said, I have many people in this city. And so Paul stays for a year and a half. And he builds and he builds and he builds. He saw so much fruit there in his year and a half there. People came to the faith. He lays the foundation and then eventually Paul leaves Corinth. At some point after that, other preachers come along and they start building on the foundation that Paul laid in Corinth. Among those teachers who came after Paul was a guy named Apollos. He built on what Paul had laid, the foundation Paul had laid down. And he built out God's building and he saw growth in the congregation after Paul left. But Paul warns that anyone who comes along after him to preach in Corinth must be careful how he builds upon Paul's foundation. Why? Look at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So hang here with the, the building metaphor. What did Paul say he preached when he was in Corinth? Remember what he said in chapter 2? I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except for what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul focused on the cross when he preached. He was building with the cross. It was the apostolic gospel of Jesus Christ. The apostolic foundation is the gospel. It's set. That's the foundation. Anyone who tries to add or to take away from the message that Paul preached is not doing God's work. There's no more foundation allowed. Paul preached that salvation comes through Christ alone, through faith alone, in fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures. Anyone who tries to say, well, there's this other way besides Jesus to get saved. Or, oh, well, there's this other revelation besides the apostolic one. Anybody who says that, that person is messing with the foundation and must be rejected as a false teacher. Paul says you don't lay another foundation. You can't build out, you build up. You build on top of what's already there. But Paul has this warning for those who are building up. Verse 12, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Look, there are two ways to build on the apostolic foundation. You can build with permanent materials, gold, silver, precious stones, or you can build with combustible materials, wood, hay, and straw. So you can, burn with, you, you can build with stuff that's going to burn or stuff that's not going to burn. And keep in mind here that the building is a metaphor for the preaching and teaching that sees people converted and sees them growing in Christ. Anyone building with a message that's errant is going to produce errant converts, wood, hay, and stubble, maybe even false converts. 
Anyone building with conformity to Paul's foundation is going to produce strong, resilient believers in Christ. Gold, silver, precious stones who don't burn up at the judgment. Each person's ministry will be shown for what it is at the judgment day. Judgment day will disclose which ministers were faithful and which ones were hucksters and carnival barkers. Those who were faithful to the gospel will have converts that come through the fire unscathed. Those who were unfaithful to the gospel will see all of their work burn up in the judgment. Look at verse 14. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward, which I think means God will reward, reward faithful ministers in the last day. But what about unfaithful, errant ministers? Look what he says. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, which may mean like pay a fine. He will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. If you're building with the bad stuff, not with the gospel stuff, but with errant stuff, wayward stuff, that builder's work gets consumed by the fire. His converts didn't endure. His works in ministry, they have no endurance. Maybe he built a ministry for himself, but it folds after he leaves or after he dies. His work is burned up at the judgment. He himself might be saved, just barely. Sounds like his eyebrows got singed off in, in, in the process. But his work is going up in a cinder, and it's a complete loss for him. So th this building metaphor is really uh, effective here, isn't it? Um, there was a, uh, an earthquake that shook North, Northridge, California back in 1994. Richard Hayes tells this story about this earthquake. And uh, there was this, uh, an apartment building that collapsed and killed 16 people in this earthquake in California, Northridge. And after the dust had settled, the builders of the apartment building were hauled into court and sued for wrongful death. And they lost the case. And they ended up having to pay a settlement of more than a million dollars to the people who brought the suit. The judge held the builders accountable for the quality of their work when it all fell down. I think that's the kind of thing that Paul has in mind here. Those whose preaching and teaching falls short of the apostolic standard will end up bringing loss and injury to the people that they influence with their teaching. And God will hold them accountable for this. James chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. If any of these teachers are spared the flames of judgment, it will only be because of God's miraculous grace. They will be like, Amos 4, 11 says, a brand snatched from the fire. So Paul says that both he and Apollos must stand before God and give an account. If that's the case, who are Paul and Apollos here? They're not anybody to be idolized. Rather, what should the Corinthians be doing? What should we be doing? You don't worship the ones who are going to be judged. You should worship the judge. So he talks about God's people as fleshly, God's people as a field, God's people as a building, God's people as a temple. Look at verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So now he's extending the building metaphor a little bit to say that building actually is God's temple and you are the temple. What's interesting here is that um, this is you plural. It should be y'all, okay? Y'all are the temple. He's thinking of the church corporately. The fact that God's spirit and presence dwells powerfully among the gathered people of God in Corinth. Anyone who destroys God's temple, meaning destroys God's people through their teaching, God's holy place, God will destroy him. I think when he says God will destroy him, that's a little bit different than just suffering loss. Your eyebrows getting singed at the judgment. This person is going to be judged themselves. If there is a way that a teacher can so violate the people of God with their errant teaching that he destroys them, and when that happens, God's going to destroy that teacher. They're going to be judged. Week before last, I saw a headline that, that said this. It said, a Southern Baptist preacher affirms polyamory. And the stories about this guy who was ordained as a Southern Baptist preacher who lives in Dallas, not only does he affirm gay marriage, he affirms any configuration of two or more people who want to live in immorality. Not only that, he points to the doctrine of the Trinity to prove his view. Because there are three people in the Trinity, therefore, Seek out love in polyamorous combinations because God is a polyamorous God. I kid you not. I actually met this guy a few years ago at a meeting in Nashville. I had an extended conversation with this guy. He went on and on about how he does thruple counseling at his church. And it was sickening, frankly, to hear how he had so distorted the faith and himself to accommodate that error. I, I found out later he was indeed ordained as a Southern Baptist, I also found out that he graduated from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in 2009. There are people in this room right now who had classes with him when he was here in Louisville. And now he's leading people to believe that they can follow Christ and pursue all manner of immorality. But guess what? It's a lie. He's lying to them. And anyone who believes him and who thinks they can follow Jesus and that sexual immorality are not walking to Jesus, but away from Jesus. They're being destroyed by this. He's leading them high-handedly to judgment. What does that mean at the judgment for such a teacher? They're destroying people. God will destroy him. I think verses 16 and 17 apply to teachers like this who creep into churches and ministries and begin to subvert anyone who will listen to them. They lead people away to judgment, and Paul is saying that they will literally have hell to pay in the end for their error. So there is a much at stake in pastoral ministry. Let me say one last thing here. God's people is fleshly. God's people is a field. God's people is a building. God's people is a temple. God's people as wise let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. Which means if you think you have the wisdom of the world, you need to become a fool as far as the world is concerned so that you can become wise as far as God's concerned. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. 
two quotations there, one from Job chapter 5, verses 12 to 13, and the other from Psalm 94 and verse 11. Paul cites those words to prove that God debunks all human wisdom. God knows the schemes of the wise of this age, and they will come to nothing. Why would you admire and idolize the wise of this age? If you do, you are tying yourself to the mast of a sinking ship. You will drown with them. Stop valuing what the world values, is what Paul is saying. Don't be divided among God's people based on divisions about these kinds of things. And so Paul gets really ironic. Look at verse 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. I don't have time. I could give you examples of this from Cicero and Seneca and these other ancient philosophers. But it was a maxim in that day that if you, among the popular philosophers of Paul's day, that wise men possess all things. So people who thought they were wise, they thought they possessed everything because they had knowledge about everything. So get the point of what Paul is saying here. He's being ironic. The the, the Corinthians claim to be wise according to worldly standards. Paul is ironically granting the point and saying, okay, wise people, you already know all things. Therefore, you already possess all things. You even possess me and Apollos and life and death and everything. But then look what he says. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. Paul blows up their balloon and then he pops it. You claim to have everything, but guess what? Christ has you. And Christ belongs to God. These proud Corinthians are so puffed up with the world's wisdom that they think they own the world. Guess what? God says to the so-called owners of the world, I own you. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The wise of this age may perceive this, may not perceive this, but Paul is jolting God's people so that they will see this. We are not our own. The church is not ours. It belongs to God and we are his. Brothers and sisters, we got to remember, we don't own Kenwood Baptist Church at Victory Memorial. It doesn't belong to us. We don't even belong to ourselves. All praise and glory belong to God if we have anything or know anything of any lasting consequence. What do we have that we did not receive? Answer, nothing. If all of that is true, then let me give you just three quick things, three quick implications for us. There's no place for celebrity worship among God's people, especially celebrity preacher worship. Get it out of your system. Glorify God. Give him all praise and honor. Second thing, there's no place for division among us. There will be divisions. But we have to do everything we can to eliminate them. We have to be humble. We have to be forbearing. We have to be forgiving. We have to be being forgiven and working things through to resolution. That's what we have to be here. We can't let offenses and important differences fester and pile up. We need to face each other as brothers and sisters and show that we can work things out because we love God and we love 
each other. Last thing. There is no place for anyone to treat this church like it belongs to them. This church belongs to God. We are his people. We operate under his charter of salvation. Under a king through whom he saved us and rules over us. We are servants and beggars and we are glad to be that in this house. We're glad to be that because we belong to him, right? Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would make us humble and holy. I pray that you would make the gospel and your truth and your kingdom central to all of us. Forgive us when we are fleshly and we fail this. Father, I pray for any divisions that are here now that I, I, don't, I don't even know about. I just pray that you would run them to ground through the powerful presence of your spirit among us. And I pray you'd make us united in the gospel, united in what you're doing here at the church. Father, I pray for those who are here who may not know you. I pray that you would awaken them to the truth that the Lord Jesus was crucified and raised for sinners. And that salvation can be theirs through repentance and faith. I pray that you'd bring them to this knowledge and bring them into this family. So, Father, do all these things and more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.